I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Begotten. A five-part audio drama brought to you by Manila Theatre. Part 4. Hazel. It's amazing how quickly you can adjust to a rock digging into your back. I've lost track of how many nights I've spent down here. I used to keep count, but one eventually runs out of fingers and toes and teeth and freckles. The rock hurt at first. I cursed myself for not lining up sooner, but how was I to know? It wasn't until the bomb hit the bakery on my street that I fully comprehended how real this was. How the rich, with their well-stocked shelters, with room only for father, mother and the children, were not actually foolish. I wished there'd been space on the platform where it was smooth and flat, but of course everyone flocked there first. I had to make do with the tunnel, and the rock in the wall that nobody else seemed willing to tolerate. Even with the sky raining shrapnel, a rock in the spine was apparently more than could be borne. I suppose I have lower standards. smell is awful. That's a fact that doesn't blunt, no matter how long you press up against it. Sweat and grime and bodily fluids that have nowhere else to go. This experiment, this living in the underground, is showing us the raw truth of human nature in a way that turns our stomachs. Sometimes I think we'd be better off taking our chances with the bombs than with the bowel movements. At least when the former hits you, the suffering is over quickly. I think about my parents and wonder if they're also in a tunnel. If I got up and walked from where I'm lying, if I followed the spiderweb of these rail lines west, far enough that the stench of the east end fell off me, far enough into my past that I never sinned, and they bore me nothing but parental devotion, admiration and their best hopes for my future, would I find them? They'd be on the platform, of course. My father is nothing if not a forward planner. There's a real sense of community down here. In some ways, that's the most surprising aspect of the whole operation. The guts of our city are literally being torn out over our heads, and we're down here singing songs and quoting Shakespeare. It's a living, breathing, stinking advertisement for British resilience. Entry permitted only to those with a stiff upper lip.
I've brought this on myself, of course. I can still hear Father Murray saying it, so clearly, as he towered over me with his awful breath. Truly, it would make the angels weep. God's judgment is swift and terrible. I suppose he's right, if current events are anything to go by. I'm just sorry I had to take all of London down with me. As I lie here, with my back against the bricks, hearing the singing, smelling the piss, feeling the rumble of trains that still run somewhere along this track, I think about the largeness of the world, and the smallness of Germany, and the fact that if all of Hitler's planes are flying west, there must be somewhere east that's quite untouched, Somewhere far enough away that nothing reaches. Not even a war. Not even everybody knowing what you've done. I think I'd like to start over in that place. I used to presume that the place a person grows up is their only possible home. I'm not sure that's true anymore. I remember myself at 21. I was vibrant, energetic, deeply naive about the plague that was to come. In retrospect, I might have preferred the locusts or lice. At least you can unleash pesticide on that situation. I had a green skirt that was my favourite thing in the world. I wore it every day because I felt it made me beautiful. My mother told me it was stupid. I had plenty of other nice skirts, and to be so possessive and so vain about any one thing was the pride that cometh before a fall. She was so very literally correct. It was the green skirt that he first commented on. Daniel, with his lanky build, his jutting chin his curly ginger hair, and the cocky little grin that only affected one side of his mouth. I'd draped myself on the bench like a pathetic preening wallflower, splaying the green skirt out as wide as it would go, crossing my knees and ensuring my right foot fell at the daintiest angle. He sidled over with his hands dug in his pockets and asked me to dance. I pulled the face I'd practised, one so full of surprise as if the thought of being asked had never occurred to me when of course it was all I had thought about since I arrived. I feigned shyness just enough to make him insist, and when he led me to the centre of the floor, I felt the electric shock of his hand on the small of my back. He was strong, despite being thin. All the hours spent lifting scrap in the yard, I supposed. We danced to Glen Miller and instead of thinking about the grey-blue eyes that were staring into mine with such intent, I thought about my parents, and how horrified they'd be when I brought Daniel home. How they'd look at the calluses on his palms, and the muck on his overalls, even when he stood so politely with his cap in his hands, and me on his arm. Preposterous, my father would call it, and my mother would go upstairs to cry. He'd be forbidden fruit. And I would delight in it. 
When I proposed coming to meet my parents on the third night we went out, Daniel looked askance and made his excuses. I thought it was his class, the fight I wished to relish and he wished to avoid. Of course it wasn't that at all, but I wouldn't find out until much later. How was I to know? I'm mortified when I think back to how soft I was dreaming about our future together. How terribly predictable. How common. The wedding I pictured was one designed specifically to horrify my parents. Or rather, it began that way. The awful truth is that I started to want it. Genuinely. They faded out of my mind with startling rapidity. And all I wanted was him. And a white dress. And a wedding ring and a home on Hampstead Heath, and children, and a great shaggy dog, probably called Herbert. We'd been seeing each other for three months when he borrowed his uncle's lorry and drove us to Brighton. On his instruction, I'd slipped out of my parents' house early in the morning with the suitcase I'd packed the day before, and met him around the corner by Knightsbridge Station. Daniel had saved his earnings for weeks and booked a hotel by the seaside. On the drive down I kept looking at him, sideways, at the side of his face that wouldn't show whether he was smiling or not. But I was smiling. I'd been to Brighton on holiday with my father, during one of my mother's bedridden periods, and we'd been to church every Sunday at St Paul's on West Street. I had told Daniel how much I loved that church, and hinted in a way I hoped was sufficiently subtle that my wish was to marry there. And here we were, bags packed, families forgotten, driving away to become man and wife in a place where no one would have cause to object. And St Paul's came into view, Daniel kept driving. He continued down to the waterfront and turned left. He drove until we reached a small hotel, one with a blue sail and cream paint that peeled and puckered in the sea air. For a tiny moment I missed the hotel I'd stayed in with my father, where the paint was fresh and the towels were soft and nothing was too much trouble. But when I saw Daniel bounding out of the lorry with the grin on his face and no idea in his head that this might not be the grandest hotel in the world, I put the memory aside and followed him. I thought we might drop off our luggage before he took me to the church. But when we got inside, Daniel removed his shoes and flopped onto the bed, with no apparent intention of getting up again. It was the first time I'd seen how yellow his toenails were. They were a little ghastly, to be honest. Later, as the sun went down and we sat cuddled together, drinking beer and watching the sea, I thought he might have arranged with the father to hold an evening ceremony. But when the last of the sun drained out of the sky... Daniel announced he was hungry, and we tramped down to the street to buy fish and chips. Finally, when it got so late that the church was almost certainly empty, and our fingers smelled so strongly of fish and grease that no one would want that to be the smell of their wedding day. I thought perhaps that Daniel would sleep in the armchair and I would take the bed for my last night as an unmarried woman, and we would begin our new life together first thing the next day. But surely you know by now what actually happened. When it was all done, and we lay side by side on the scratchy cotton sheets, my pelvis pounding with confusion and the pain I hadn't known to expect, 
I lost the final bit of grasp on my composure, and the tears came freely. Daniel asked what was wrong, and I told him. I thought you would marry me, I said. I'm ruined, and my parents will never take me back. And Daniel laughed, which I thought was rather cold. But then he kissed me and fondled my breast and told me not to worry. He would marry me, he promised, just as soon as he had money saved for a ring. What I remember from the next morning is this. First, the seagulls, calling and squawking in place of a rooster on a farm. Second, the light from the window, illuminating the stains on my pillow I hadn't seen the night before. Third, turning over to find the bed empty, and Daniel's luggage gone, and his uncle's lorry missing from its parking place on the street. I returned to my parents for the first few months. But when I stopped bleeding and my stomach started swelling, I couldn't lie any longer. Not even to myself. I think my mother would have let me stay. At least until the birth. At least until my daughters had been found a suitable home. But my father... He was no longer the man who had carried me on his shoulders in Brighton while I licked my ice cream cone, something he had bought me to cheer me up after a seagull relieved itself on my hat. He was a stranger now, crueler than I had imagined in even my harshest fantasies, and he could not abide harbouring an unrepentant sinner in his home. I was repentant, but for my foolishness, not for my state. Problems, according to my father, are best dealt with at their inception and not at their end. He is nothing if not a forward planner, after all. And so I took the less violent of the options he proposed, and I rode the train east. I saw Daniel once again, six months ago, when I was walking along Bishopsgate early in the morning. He had been partly blown up by the spray of a bomb, one leg was gone altogether, and from the chest down what remained of him might as well have been meat in a butcher's shop window. His curly hair was the same, as were his eyes, although now they flickered back frantically in his head, apparently short-circuiting with the one bit of life that remained in him. I must have been the fiftieth person to walk past him that morning. Was I really the first to see he was alive? I might have called for help. I might have tried to get him to a hospital. But his daughters were hungry, and if I didn't get to the factory on time, the foreman would give my job to one of the other desperate mothers lined up outside his door. So I left him, and went to serve the parts of him that still had a chance. The parts that might choose to do no harm. They're curled up in front of me now clear and amber, perfectly fitted to one another, snug in their blanket, entirely content between the railway tracks. I envy their ability to find home wherever I place them. I feel more and more like a tourist in my own life, with no passport to show where I came from.
There is a better world than this. There must be. Somewhere where people don't drop bombs night after night. Somewhere where the past and the naivete of youth don't make you hateful forever. Somewhere where they could grow up and have possibilities, regardless of who their mother is. Somewhere where I could wear my favourite green skirt again and not be a vain, foolish whore. The train is coming, soon. And if it doesn't kill us while we're laying in its path, we'll ride it somewhere new. Perhaps it will take me home. You have been listening to part four of Begotten, a five-part radio drama presented by Manola Theatre. Manola Theatre is a production and training company based in Brisbane, Australia. Begotten was reimagined as an audio drama in response to the nationwide closure of theatres and performing arts spaces. If you would like to hear more right now, you can access Begotten in full from manolatheatre.com.au and support the creators via the Pay What You Like option on their website. Begotten was written and performed by Bianca Butler-Reynolds and directed by Kat Decker, with post-production sound by Siobhan Finnis. The producers thank Kelvin Baker and Jim Reynolds for their production assistance, and That's Not Canon Productions for their support. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.